lesson, the scripture today is from Matthew 21, verses 12 through 13. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. What an interesting passage before us. <laughs> and while it's only two verses, it's loaded. Uh, we're going to see that today. I, I think it's prudent um, just to make sure we understand. Again, we are walking through and have been walking through the book of Matthew for several months now. Um, and we remember that Jesus, we celebrated last week his triumphal entry. Jesus coming in and riding on the colt, the foal of the donkey. He is coming and being introduced into Jerusalem as the king, as Messiah. But we noted that he came in humbly. He came in gentle. He came in lowly. He, he didn't arrive on this valiant steed. He, he didn't come in with this massive army. He's simply coming. But at the same time, and we can't lose this, he's coming powerfully. Powerfully because as we hear the people cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we also noted that this is sort of the establishing for the first time his position as king. If you remember all throughout the book of Matthew that we've studied so far, before this event, anytime Jesus would heal, anytime Jesus would perform a miracle, anytime he would change someone's life, do you remember what he would say? He would say, don't tell anyone. Go. Be silent. Because it wasn't yet time for him to be revealed. But no longer must they be kept silent. The time has come for the Father's plan to bring the Son to the forefront. And what's the first stop he makes after he has been pronounced king? Where does he go? It's okay. Where, where, we, where is he going today? The temple, right? So as we look at our text today, we're going to see that Jesus is dealing with the religious rulers, the money changers in the temple, and he will reveal himself to them but not in the way that they expect. And so our practice and custom here at Antioch is before we get into the text for today, we take just a moment of silence. And we do that to ask the Spirit of God to be the one to open our eyes. We ask the Spirit to be the one who causes us to have ears to hear His Word. We ask Him to remove the scales from our eyes so that we can fully see who he is. And so we're going to take just a moment of silence. And if in this time you find your mind racing or you find your thoughts still bombarding, simply pray this prayer to yourself, Spirit of God, give me ears to hear. So let's take just a moment and prepare our hearts. Amen. So again, we've just seen Jesus come in humbly on a donkey. And now in our passage today, we see him flipping tables, flipping over chairs, 
Porter and I were talking about this passage this week, and I told him, I was like, what would it be like if dad had a bunch of tables and just throughout the service, I just randomly went over and started flipping them just to make sure everybody was still awake. He thought it was a great idea. Um, I, I won't do that this morning. But it does seem sort of like this record scratch moment, doesn't it? It sort of seems like this, what? Why is Jesus flipping tables? Why is he turning over chairs? Was that really necessary? But obviously it was, because as we know, and Jesus has already told us, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. So for whatever reason, and we're going to see hopefully some of those reasons today, there was a need for tables to be turned over. There was a need for chairs to be flipped. But here's what I want us to do. I think right out of the gate, we need to remember, Jesus never sinned. Jesus was without sin. So everything he does has a purpose and is the perfect will of God. So it was right. If you're wondering, was he close to sinning in this? No, it was right that Jesus turned over the chairs and the temple in this manner. I love how Pastor Tim Keller said it. He said, only the owner of the house is allowed to rearrange the furniture. And I think that's what we need to remember here. I think sometimes we miss when we're reading passages of Scripture that Jesus is not flipping over somebody else's tables. He's not flipping over somebody else's chairs. These are his tables. These are his chairs. This is his temple. These are his animals that are being used and sold for the, cre for the sacrifice. He created them. Everything was and is made by him. So this is his house. This is his stuff. He can rearrange the furniture however he sees fit. And we know this as the psalmist remind us. The earth and everything in it. The world and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. But for you and me, I want us to be careful because I think it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for you and I to see what Jesus did without sin and think, oh, so I can do that too? I can go in and flip some tables? I, I, I don't think, I think it would be, let's just say, I think it would be impossible for you and I to go in to a place and start flipping some tables and some chairs without falling into sin, okay? So I, I don't want us to read this passage and again think we've been given a right to destroy property. But again, this was his property. And again, I think it's easy for us when we read passages of Scripture like this and others, but I think it's easy for us to sort of get this sort of superiority feeling, this, this puffed up chest feeling, if you will, that we can just go around like Jesus and flip tables where, where everyone else has gotten it wrong. We can go in and just flip those tables on their head. But what I want us to do this morning is not look at this passage as if we are Jesus. We need to look at this passage as if we are the religious rulers and the money changers. Could it be us that maybe need our tables flipped? Could it be us that maybe need our chairs flipped? So keep that in mind as we go throughout this today. First thing I want us to see, why did Jesus even feel the necessity to do this? What was happening that would justify this type of response? Well, we see here in verse 13 that Jesus in his answer, you'll notice it's a quote. He's quoting scripture. He even says, it is written. 
My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it into a den of thieves. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Anytime we see Jesus in his ministry say, it is written, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And in fact, that statement that he's saying, that he's quoting, my house will be called a house of prayer, not a den of thieves, is actually two passages of Scripture that he used, put together, to make one quote. You may see that noted in your Bible, verse 13. It may give you some footnotes to say, hey, look, he's quoting from two different places. And we're going to look at both of those. The first one, Isaiah 56, 7. You may see that again, notated at the bottom. Isaiah 56, 7. That's the first part of what Jesus is quoting. But we need to look at that passage specifically. Isaiah 56, 7. It says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now we need to make note that Matthew did not quote all of Isaiah 56. In fact, he didn't say for all nations when he was quoting Jesus. We go back and look later on, if you will, in the Markan account. If you look in the book of Mark, Mark records this same passage, this same uh, instance happening. But Mark includes in there the full verse for all nations. Here's the, we, the reason why scholars believe that Matthew didn't say this point at the end of his quotation specifically. It's because we know that Matthew is written primarily to the Jews. And so by Matthew even beginning to quote that passage in Isaiah, he's sort of assuming, if you will, or knowing that when he starts quoting that passage, those Jews would know the passage of Scripture, specifically in Isaiah, that he was quoting. They would understand that reference. I think we also need to some help here in, in why Jesus would do this to look at the layout of the temple. And I've got us a diagram here. I think that'll help us. So you see here in green, in the outside areas, you've got the court of the Gentiles. And, and there in the middle, you've got the women's court, you've got the court of Israel, then you have the altar and the holy place. Notice where the court of Israel is compared to the court of the Gentiles. The court of Israel is nicely tucked in the middle. Nicely sort of positioned in the middle while the court of the Gentiles remains on the exterior. You can see how each people were separated. Each group was segregated based on their nationality. And when we study what is happening here in this context, what is going on is the religious rulers and the money, the money changers were setting up essentially a market, if you will, for buying and selling of sacrificial animals and for money exchange right in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. Now this setup was purposeful. The Jews wanted to keep their court serene. They didn't want any of that happening in the court of Israel. And so let's push it all out and it'll only happen and keep those market exchanges, if you will, in the court 
of the Gentiles. This setup was purposeful because the Jews wanted to keep their court quiet. And just honestly, they didn't care about the Gentiles. They didn't care. It's widely noted the Jews hated the Gentiles. They didn't care that the area that the Gentiles were in was being turned into a circus with cages of animals and smells and waste that comes with it. The Jews wanted an entirely different space. They wanted the Gentiles out there so that their court of Israel would stay clean in here uninterrupted. The Jews wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles. They didn't want to intermingle with them simply because of their heritage. Simply because they were born into a different race. May we never look or operate this way. Both in our homes, but also in our church. May we never want to be so closed off that we create this insulated environment to keep out those people. Now, I, I can't answer for everyone's heart, so only you can answer the question yourselves. But here's something that I can't answer. As I've looked back over the almost three years that I've been here and have seen our church, I've watched our church welcome in all people. I've watched our church be a place where all people are welcome, and I'm grateful for how I've seen our church be a welcoming body. I mean, just this week, I heard a direct example of how people here have felt welcomed in our church because other people who had been here longer than they are welcomed them, cared for them, said hello to them, included them. I am grateful for Antioch to be and is continuing to be a welcoming place for all people of every nation. But here's the thing. Not only can we be a welcoming place in our face-to-face -face interactions, we also have to be a welcoming place in our speech as well. We all need to pay attention in this area. We all need to be reminded how we can easily use language that would be isolating or separating. I've already used the phrase, and I quoted it specifically, but one example would be if we start using or if we continue to use phrases like those people. When we use words like those people, we, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we create a divide. When we say those people, we immediately create dichotomy between ourselves and then whomever else we're referring to. And this could flesh out in so many different ways, whether it's when we talk about someone from a different nationality, whether it's we're talking about someone from another race, whether we're talking about a group that may sin different ways than we do, whether we, whatever the case may be, what I want us to do is to really pay attention that our way of speaking doesn't divide us. Rather, it matches the welcoming spirit that we have as a church. But if we look at this particular interaction, we see with Jesus and the temple, he is, or he is addressing their denial of operating according to what the passage in Isaiah had said. They are not acting as if the temple is for people of all nations. 
The Jews didn't hide this. They didn't hide the fact that they felt superior to all other races. They openly, unashamed, let racism be known. We can never be like the Jews in this way. We can never be a people who is unwelcoming to those from other races and other nationalities. It's not biblical, it's sinful. This is why we read each week in our mission statement, we go to our neighbors and the nations. Now, Mr. Steve Hawkins would always say this. He said it as far as I can remember him being here. He would say, the nations have come to our doorstep. Do you remember him saying that? And he was right. When you look at Nashville as a whole, you will find that Antioch is one of the most, if not the most, diverse areas of the city. And we have the privilege of being planted right here in the middle of this area. And we have the privilege to get to serve people that are here. That God has sovereignly placed us in this part of the city where the nations are here and we get to be a church that lives out Isaiah 56 and says this will be a house that welcomes people of all tribes, of all tongues, of every nation. Now hang with me here, okay? If you haven't realized it or not, this is an election year. Okay, now some of you are already getting a little squirrely that I even mentioned that. Just, just hang with me, because I don't want to make this light. Hang with me. This is an election year. The topic of immigration, the topic of closed borders and open borders will be wielded around to try to get votes on both sides. Now, you can be clear, we're not here to debate immigration policy this morning. So don't worry. But what I am calling us to is to be a people that does not let our politics cloud our vision and fail to see people. Regardless of how people arrived to this country, they are here. Regardless if they came in legally or illegally, they are here in our community. As Mr. Hawkins said, they are at our doorstep. And these people are created in the image of God. And we are called to love. We are called to show compassion. We are called to share the love of Jesus to all Whomever the Lord draws to our church, we will welcome them to be a part of Antioch First Baptist. When we put the welcome sign at the road each week, there's not an asterisk by it. When we say welcome in our driveway, we don't have an asterisk that says, wait a minute, read the fine print of whether you're actually going to be welcomed here or not. We say welcome. Why? Because Jesus said welcome. Antioch First Baptist will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the second half of this statement that Jesus is quoting is from a passage of Scripture found in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. 
And here's what Jeremiah the prophet says in verse 11. He says, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers in your view? Now, if you study what is happening here with the religious rulers and the money changers, what you find is that they were overcharging the people, the Gentiles that were coming from afar to give their sacrifice, to lay the sacrifice at the altar. They were overcharging them, and they were charging them extreme exchange rates for their money to be exchanged so it would be welcomed into the temple. The Gentiles were being taken advantage of by the Israelites. And when you hear Jesus say, you've made it into a den of things, you might initially think, well, he's simply addressing financial abuse. But if you look closer, that's not what Jesus really is addressing at all. When you take time to read the full context of what is happening in Jeremiah chapter 7, you begin to find that there was a pattern being formed of the people that Jeremiah is addressing. And what they had been becoming to be patternized in is they began to live however they wanted and then just run to the temple to be cleansed through the sacrifice and then go right back to living however they were. They were abusing forgiveness. I, I want you to see it. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. I want us to see how this context sets up why Jesus would quote this particular passage of Scripture. So we're going to read verses 1 through 11, which gives us the context of why Jesus would quote this. It says in Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord, and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through the gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of the armies, the God of Israel says, correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words, chanting, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead... If you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever." But here's what he says. But look, you keep trusting in your deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and, to, and follow other gods that you have not known? And then do you come and stand before me in the house that bears my name and say, but we are rescued? So we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Then Jesus says, has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I have seen it too. 
Jesus is flipping the tables in the temple in a way to say, why even bother doing all of these sacrificial acts? Why even bother going through this ritual if your life is just going to remain the same? He's saying, you're abusing the system of grace that I've provided for you in this moment. You're not changing. You're simply just wanting to live however you want to and then using him to feel better about yourself. Ultimately, they were putting their stake in the works of the sacrificial system and no real change was happening in their lives. There was a, a lady, her name was Barbara Boyd. Barbara Boyd was instrumental in the, the ministry called InterVarsity. And here's what Barbara said. She said, if I'm asked or invited to go into a house, and the, guest, or the person who's asking me says, hey, Barbara is welcome, but leave the Boyd. She said, that that's impossible. I can't dichotomize myself. I can't just say, oh, the Barbara will only come in. I'll leave the Boyd portion outside the door. No, she is Barbara Boyd. And I think sometimes we have this same idea with Jesus. So many times we want the Jesus who's riding in on the donkey humbly but we don't want the Jesus who would ask us to change our ways and flip our tables. We want Jesus to be our Savior, but we want nothing with him about being our Lord. We want Jesus to forgive us, but we want nothing to do with walking in holiness. We want certain passages of Scripture to be true, but not others. If certain passages of Scripture fit with how we want to live, yeah, we'll follow those. But if others infringe on how we want to live, let's ignore those. We don't get part of Jesus. We, we don't get to choose which aspects of the Christian life we want to follow and then which ones we want to ignore. We either get all of Jesus or none of Jesus. See, this is why living and growing up in the cultural Christian South is dangerous. It's not wrong. It's not bad. I am thankful for all the ways that I have heard and known about Jesus. But it's easy sometimes and dangerous sometimes to think, oh, I, I'm good to go. I'm saved because I trusted in a system. I'm saved because I, I showed up to RAs, and I showed up to GAs, and I got more badges for memorizing Scripture than anybody else. Or, or I, will, I, I did. I came down front, and I, I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. All of those things, sometimes we put all of our stake in the things we have done, but when we start to look at the fruit of our lives, we don't see the fruit or the evidence that Jesus is Lord. 
It's not to cause doubt in you this morning. It's to have reality set in, to go, what am I truly trusting in? Am I trusting in the fact that I went through the system, or am I trusting in the fact that I actually see fruit of a Savior in my life? JJ, come on up. The system doesn't save us. Jesus does. Jesus came to earth to put on flesh. We quoted it all the ways that he was perfect and right for us in our confession of sin. He lived a sinless life. He died the sinner's death that you and I deserve. And he took in that death our sin to the cross and he died and he rose again. Also that you and I may be freed from the penalty of our sin. So that you and I can fully rest in the assurance that we are saved. But he didn't come so that you and I could just ask for forgiveness and then go back to living the life the same as before. Paul tells us he came so that we could have newness of life. The old things passed away. All things become new. Now look, this doesn't mean that you won't struggle with sin. This doesn't mean that you won't be tempted to go back to that old way of life. But if Jesus has truly saved you, if you have confessed and repented and believed, it does mean that you will see the fruit of that salvation and your life will never, can never be the same as it was. I don't often ask us to do this, but I just, I want us to do this this morning. Will you just close your eyes, bow your head for a second? I just, I just want as little distractions as possible. That's, that's the only reason I'm asking us to do this. Here's what I want. I want you to be as real with God and yourself as maybe you have ever before or even in a long time. Here's what I want you to ask him to do. It's a bold ask. Will you ask him to flip over some tables in your life? I want you to ask that the Spirit convict you this morning where you've been trusting in a system to save you and ask him to show you how you've been holding on to things that need to be taken out of your hands. You've been sitting at tables that need to be flipped. Would you ask him to loosen your grip so that you can have open hands to receive him? Father, would you flip the tables in our lives that need to be flipped? Would you unclench our hands to the things we're holding on to so that we can have open hands to receive you? Father, that's a hard prayer to pray. But it's so worth it. Because most, most of the time, the things we're holding on to, you have so much better for us. You have so much more to show us, yet we're clenching our fists onto things that falsely give us hope and falsely give us trust. We're seated around tables that make us feel comfortable. God, flip the table so we will be uncomfortable. Only you can do it. And we invite you to do that in our lives and in our church. We need you. Amen.